Welcome to episode two of the GAM Talks podcast. Today we'll be talking to Paul McNamara, Investment Director, Emerging Markets Fixed Income, on the outlook for emerging market debt, the differences between hard and local currency, and his view that Twitter can be a very useful tool from an investment perspective. Don't forget to listen to our important legal information at the end of this podcast. So, Paul, why should investors consider emerging market debt in the longer term? Well, it's, um, I mean, it's always interesting in, you know, it's a high risk asset class where you get high risk, you get high yields and you have the potential for higher returns, although you also have the potential for higher drawdowns. Uh, I mean, globalisation is in retreat a little bit at the moment, but, you know, these countries aren't going to go away. You're not going to go to a situation where South America doesn't matter anymore, where Asia doesn't matter anymore. So, you know, these countries are part of the, you know, are part of the future of the global economy. They're going to remain very important. That's not going to go away. Now, historically, these countries have tended to grow faster than developed countries, which by its own nature just means that returns should be higher, uh, whether that's in equity or debt or generally in both. But I think, you know, above all at the moment, uh, when you've got, you know, a huge amount of debt in the developed world, negative yielding, and you get average yields of 5 6 7% in both dollar debt and local currency debt, it's very hard not to at least have a good look at emerging markets. And what for you is the most interesting, appealing aspect of emerging market debt? I think it's, it's the boom and bust mentality that however many times you go through it, when things are going wrong, it's always the end of the world. Uh, whenever things are going right, it, we're always on the path to, path to nirvana. You know, that, that, that it's incredibly sentiment driven and, you know, and that we react that much more. You know, plus you have all the, you know, the political colour. Uh, I think it's just generally compared with the economies of the developed world, things are much more extreme. And I think that just makes it a much more interesting place to spend your days. What's the, what's the one thing that's kind of occupying your mind right now regarding EMD? What keeps you awake at night? Oh, lots of things. <laughs> I mean, e- EM is above all a play on global growth and a play on globalisation. And, th- and those two things are, are in retreat right now. Um, obviously, we're, we're with President Trump, um, the US is backing away from globalisation. Brexit, too, represents a major step away from, from working in a global economy, sort of becoming much more inward looking. And I think if that spreads to the European union more generally um that that's going to be um very worrying the other thing is you know anything that makes global growth more difficult so the trade war is not good chinese weakness isn't good uh, the persistent weakness in the eurozone is also problematic so but it boils down to two things it's uh, you know keeping the world economy relatively open so we can you know we can keep trading uh, to mutual benefit and just growth generally um, and uh, is it unfair that the EMs are are viewed as more risky than, than developed markets? No, absolutely not. Um, I mean, okay. I mean, politics in the developed world has got a little insane recently, but you know, institutions are weaker. You are going to get things like Turkey last year, where the you know the currency dropped forty, fifty percent, like Argentina, which seems headed over a cliff. Um, no, it, it's the nature of the thing, and I think the time to worry about EM is when you're not getting premium for the additional risk in these countries right and is is it essential for you to to uh, kind of overarching that to have an understanding of the the geopolitics of these countries yeah i mean it just in as much as geopolitics is relevant anywhere i mean what you do tend to find is you know both in the developed world and in emerging markets people get very excited about the politics where you get an awful lot of noise for relatively little signal 
most of the time when you have a big scare about politics, um, it tends to be smarter to fade it. Look, there are exceptions, you know, that um, if you look at the trade war recently, um, you know, if you look at you know the, the sacking of the head of the central bank in Turkey, if you look at the, the election that's coming up in Argentina, there are times when the politics does matter. But, you know, the forces sort of pulling countries back towards orthodoxy are really very strong. And, you know, it people tend to overestimate the importance of politics relative to economics, we think. And you're very much focused on investing in, in local currency as opposed yeah. to hard currency debt. But, I mean, for, for an investor who's not clear, what, what are the differences really between investing in local, hard, and perhaps a blend of the two? I, I, I think both need looking at. Um, I mean, the virtue of hard currency is obviously you take out the volatility uh, associated with the currencies. You're much less at the, the mercy of the dollar. Um, but what you tend to find is that the countries that borrow in dollars tend to be the weaker credits. You know, so you get, you know, we've seen big recent issue out of Egypt. We've seen a lot of issuance out of sub-Saharan Africa, um, you know, and across the world like that. Whereas countries that can borrow in local currency tend to, because then they don't have this big currency risk associated with their with, with their government or private sector debt. Um you get a higher quality of country, a higher quality of credit in the local markets, but that's not always what you want. And I do think, you know, that a broad-based um, investment in the asset class in both hard and local currency makes sense. Um, I mean, if, if, if you think of the what you know, that there are sort of three states of the world. If things are growing strongly, then local EM currencies tend to be doing very well, and local currency will outperform. If you have what we've seen for most of the last 10 years, which is solid but unspectacular growth, then the coupons get paid, the currencies don't do terribly well, and hard currency outperforms. And that's what we've seen for sort of four or five years now, or sort of uh, five out of the last seven years. Um, now, the, the thing to remember, though, is that when it all goes wrong, if you look at a 2008, that's when the weaker countries, the Ukraines, the Argentinas, start looking at default, and you do very badly in hard currency, whereas Poland or Malaysia or Mexico tend to carry on. So, I mean, two answers. One, it depends on what you think of the where we are in the global economic cycle. But two, um, I think most of the time a mix of the two is going to make sense, and you should probably be exposed to both. Makes a lot of sense. Um, you touched on it earlier, Paul, when you talked about Turkey. Is it a, a kind of a specific trait of emerging markets that, you know, some of these countries that, are, if you're being unkind, you could call them basket cases? I mean, Argentina springs to mind as well. Oh, I don't know. We're, we're, do, 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 you know, do they, do they turn from being a basket case into an opportunity and back again? Uh, they do. In a, you know, in a bust uh, like Turkey last year or Argentina over the last year or so, you can lose 40, 50, 60 percent you know, in a very short time in a specific market. So you want to stay out of those. But the, the flip side of that is that countries invariably, basically always, overshoot to the downside, and that creates value. So you could buy, you know, debt in Turkey, a country which is now delivering a current account surplus with a yield until recently in the 20s and with a currency that was cheap. I mean, that that's a great opportunity. I think Argentina looks much more vulnerable, um, but it's definitely one of the places we have to be most focused on. I mean, I think the key is to see this boom-bust thing as, one, an opportunity to make money, but also, from our point of view, if we're, if we're active investors, it's, it's, it's proven as an area 
where the active managers can can outperform the passive is by focusing on these boom and bust situations. Mm-hmm. And and it, it, I guess the key is, is not to be scared off to, to understand what makes these countries tick and the fact that they, they can recover from these I situations. Mean, it, it, it's volatile. Emerging markets are going to be volatile. The politics are weird. The economics are more vulnerable. There's a lot of foreign debt. Uh, you know, it's going to be highly volatile. It's it's definitely not an inv- uh, an asset class you know, to treat as a safe investment and then, you know, maybe bail on if it loses a bit. You have to be committed for the long term. Mm-hmm. China. How important is China? Um, and the, the, what's the significance of, for example, its uh, devaluation of the yuan? Well, I mean, China itself is absolutely critical. Uh, I mean, both as a driver of global growth, but especially as a driver of commodity prices, because an awful lot of the emerging market countries are commodity exporters. I mean, all of South America, uh, most of Africa, right? Anyway, as you as you go across, there's an awful commodities, and China is the dominant consumer of of every commodity except for oil. Um, so, both in terms of that and as an overall driver, as a market for a lot of other emerging markets, it's absolutely critical. Uh, um, w- was was Trump fair accusing them of being a currency manipulator, or is that just another Trumpism? No, uh, well, I mean, one of one of the one of the things I don't think is fair is the currency manipulator, because until recently the Chinese were actually intervening to prevent the currency from weakening rather than uh, to encourage it to weaken. Uh, I mean, the, the the renminbi tends to trade off the dollar, uh, but because China trades a lot more with uh, emerging markets. Uh, than the U.S. does. It, you know, when the dollar is strong, uh, you know, China can uh, China has to has to devalue more because emerging markets and it's trying to keep its competitiveness with them in line. Um, overall, uh, I I think there are serious issues with the behaviour of China in the world economy in terms of patent protection, in ter- in terms of of lots of other things. But I think on the specific charge of currency manipulation, it's very hard to make that stick. And in terms of uh, exploring new opportunities, uh, do, do you actively seek out new markets, frontier markets that perhaps you haven't looked at before? We, we always do. You know, while there are interesting opportunities in places like Kazakhstan, Pakistan, uh, you know, around the world, uh, they're not liquid and you have to be very, very cautious. So definitely it's something we look at. We, you know, we have to be aware of new opportunities, but, you know, there really isn't going to be a case where you can make a very significant allocation to these economies because, you know, preserving, you know, our place in the market as a reliably liquid investor, that's very important to us as well. Do you, do you foresee a, a time in the future whereby some of the emerging markets actually gain developed market status oh, yeah. I mean, and, your, and your universe changes? I mean, it happens all the time. Uh, I mean, you know, the first market, I mean, sort of South Korea and Taiwan, were emerging markets when I started this job. Now, you know, they're not included in, in, in the, certainly in the main indices we follow. Um, and I think, you know, the Czech Republic's probably already pretty much there with Poland and Hungary not far behind. So Central Europe, you know, these these countries are moving ahead. Um, otherwise, you know, it, it's going to be a while, you know, maybe Romania and Bulgaria, but they're kind of marginal. I, you know, there's, there's, you know, yes, countries do graduate from EM status, you know, um, you know, as I said, Central Europe and, you know, the, the smaller Asians have taken that step. Israel as well, really, since I've been doing this job. Uh, but it's, you know, mass graduation. I mean, the, most of these countries are still solidly below $20,000 per year GDP per capita. 
Whereas, you know, developed markets, the threshold is, is kind of more somewhere around sort of 30 or 35,000. So they've got there's a, a, there's a, a long big way gap to go. To and and you, I, I suppose you would say that there's still plenty of opportunities out there for of you course. to explore. Yeah, yeah, there, there, there is, you know, um, you know, in, in a world, as I said, where, you know, yields are headed for zero. You know, if you if you if you start off with an average yield of sort of six, seven percent, you've got a huge head start. It's, it's got to stay interesting. Um, so. How did you originally get into emerging market and specifically emerging market debt investing? It goes back a very long way. Um, I've, I finished uh, university in um, 1991. Um, now, I specialised there in looking at the, the reform of the former uh, Eastern Bloc countries. Um, you know, one of the one one of the tutors had been in charge, uh, or was part of the reform of the Polish economy, which stood that country in very good stead in time going forward. And I got fascinated by the whole thing. So from there, I went off to Poland. I spent three years there uh, doing a bit of lecturing, a bit of journalism, and really kind of came back sort of saturated in what was then uh, one of the big groups of emerging markets, which was the reforming post-communist economies. When I got back to the UK, I was looking around for a job. I ended up in the UK civil service. Now, the UK was then owed quite a lot of money by emerging markets uh, through its export credit programme. So I was working as an economist in that team, trying to figure out which countries uh, could be safely insured, trying to figure out how much money we'd get back on the ones who defaulted. So, I, you know, I really had both an academic and a practical background in emerging markets and emerging markets economies. And, you know, from there, it was a short step. Uh, I actually applied for a job ad in the Financial Times to come at work at Julius Baer. And that's, I mean, although, you know, the we did a management buyout, it became Augustus, then Augustus got bought by GAM. So while the business changes every couple of years i've been doing the same job working with the same group of people more or less for 22 years mm-hmm. it's been a very interesting time to be doing emerging markets yeah i can well imagine and, and am i right in thinking as a byproduct of that you are actually um you, you speak some polish i speak yeah i'm reason well I, you know i'm nobody's going to ever mistake me for polish but I, you know <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm reasonably fluent uh, also helped that my wife is polish and it was my daughter's first language ah okay okay I want to throw a few things at you that perhaps sure. aren't so uh, related to to your day job, if you like. So, <laughs> yeah. um, are you much of a reader, and and have you have you read any good books recently? Uh, yeah, I, I I usually read a lot. Uh, I mean, at the moment, for <laughs> personal reasons, I'm I'm trying to learn Irish, which is sort of using up most of the most of the leisure time. Uh, the last thing I read, which was in any way connected to economics, was a book about. Uh, John Gresham, the uh, who was you know an important financier during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, and the sort of the history mm-hmm. of how things changed. I mean, obviously Gresham's Law, which is uh, one of the rules that bad money drives out good, is very important even today. Um, I mean, I read a lot of history generally. Um, yep. Do you find you can draw a lot of parallels with what what happens today, or is it as it, the yeah, world moves on? Uh, I mean, you know, you, you read anything, you know, about human nature and so on. You know, it, just reading is good. Um, I mean, you shouldn't necessarily be sort of looking through the biography of a of an Elizabethan financier to say <laughs> whether you should be allocating to Brazil or Russia. But it's always interesting reading and getting more experience of the world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and if you if you could give uh, the the young Paul McNamara just embarking on his career one piece of advice, what what would that piece of advice be? Well, the first thing I did was put a lot of money into Indonesia, and that was a terrible idea. <laughs> um, I think no, I think I think I think the thing the thing is 
most of the time you don't want to be contrarian because most of the time the market is right. When the market is wrong, it's very, very wrong. Uh, that that kind of balance between not trying to be a contrarian all the time, but recognizing that being a contrarian is sometimes going to pay off. Because I think, you know, you try to go all one way, always be a trend follower, always be a contrarian, and you have to be more flexible than that. Uh, uh, do those sort of decisions come with experience? Do, do you spot some I signs? Think I, yeah, it, realistically, experience is the most valuable thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, when we're looking to hire people, one of the one of the things we tend to look for is somebody who's had an absolutely horrific experience, who's lost a lot of money, yeah. who's been disastrously wrong, and thus had to sit there and think, "Oh my God," you know, because that's that's the great learning experience, and you can't really replicate that with some with somebody new. Uh, yeah, experience is incredibly important. Um, now, I wanted to talk to you about Twitter specifically. Um, oh, yeah. I know you're very active on Twitter Probably and you're, very, you're very, active, keen, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very keen on using it. Um, I suppose there are two sides to, 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 to that. One is you have an outlet, a way of expressing your own views. But is it also useful as a source of information on some yeah. of the areas in which you it's, invest? It's incredibly useful as, as a source of information. I mean, I'm, I'm slightly restricted in that the only emerging market language I speak is Polish. Uh, but, you know, if you look at Ukraine, if you look at Argentina, you know, and even going back to the euro crisis, if you're looking at Greece, there's an awful lot of people, especially local people, um, you know, tweeting in English. It's a great place to pick up information you're not getting anywhere else. Certainly, um, you know, the best example I can think of was in 2014 when Russia effectively invaded Ukraine. You know, we, the Twitter, the locals were taking the situation much more seriously than foreigners were. And we, you know, we had a nice little edge there. Mm -hmm. um, it's a great way of making contacts, you know, both in the markets and especially with journalists uh, around the world. Um, it's also nice, you know, that if I try, if you try and put something that's useful to other people up, it's a great way of making contacts. Uh, I mean, social media, it's, it, it, it's more, it's not really even so much what's what's on the screen it's the contacts you make and the relationships you can build through doing that but i think it's a very very valuable investment tool yeah and and have it's you also great fun well that too yeah, yeah uh, you, know, uh, you don't uh, get a lot of people making jokes about uh, <laughs> you know the solvency and so on yeah. yeah yeah and uh, you found specific examples where you've you've broadened your contact base just Absolutely. through someone replying Absolutely. to a tweet or, or yeah. seeing There's something a lot of country. yeah and it, and it's you know i mean the language thing is is clearly an issue. You know, if I spoke Spanish, um, especially given sort of South America or Portuguese, that would be extremely useful to broaden the base. So, you know, yeah. there is always the danger. And I think this is always a thing in EM that you speak to the people in EM who are like you, and which, you know, which can be problematic. I mean, if you only speak to people who are pro-capitalism in Venezuela, you're missing, you're missing an awful lot. But uh, yes, it is extremely valuable. Uh -huh. uh, for making contacts, even even with that proviso about the language. Yeah. So, do you have a particular investment hero, someone whose career, whose progress you've always followed? I, I mean, I think you know, it, it, there's so many names that that always get come up. You know, so saying something like George Soros is is kind of terribly, terribly predictable. Um, I, you know, I do think you know that, that Soros has a record that's that's almost unassailable. Uh, and you know, in addition to that. You know, he's engaged with uh, a very specific area that's made him very unpopular, and you have to admire that. But I think the fact that, you know, that he's been, you know, he was already a hugely established figure where on White Wednesday, when the pound was thrown out of the ERM, you know, and then, you know, sort of 25 years later, he's still all over subprime. I think you have to admire that kind of long lasting uh, trading genius.
Mm-hmm. Paul, really nice to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Okay. For more of our insights, please visit our website, gam.com. Important legal information. The information in this podcast is given for information purposes only and does not qualify as investment advice. Opinions and assessments contained in this podcast may change and reflect the point of view of GAM in the current economic environment. No liability shall be accepted for the accuracy and completeness of the information. The mentioned financial instruments are provided for illustrative purposes only and shall not be considered as direct offering, investment recommendation or investment advice. Past performance is no indicator of current or future trends.